Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Here in this week of Crufts, I'm joined by canine aficionado, Thea Lenarduzzi. Is, is Crufts on? Are you not a Crufts fan? <laughs> no, I'm not either. I think we would fall at the absolutely the first hurdle. Yeah, Alf when is When they a, say, so what, what is Alf he? is a mongrel. Yeah, he wouldn't pass it. People <laughs> are obsessed by it. Yeah. People are obsessed by it. Yeah. Once when I was editing uh, a paper on a Sunday for Monday... There was a murder at Crufts. A dog was killed. Uh, such was the level of tension. They were trying to yeah. get... Because these are pedigrees, lots of money mm. at stake. And we had no splash. And so we, we did a splash. It was kind of a big story. And people love dogs, obsessed, as you know now. So we did the splash. Murder at Crufts. Police to follow all leads. <laughs> and uh, not everyone found that funny. <laughs> How is Alf? He's, he's well. He's... he's yep, he's becoming more confident he's getting a little cocky at times yeah. i think yeah he's got, um, has he got you wrapped around his, his he's very paw. strong <laughs> i'm discovering yeah, yeah. um and he, he sometimes he starts having a mad half hour on an extendable lead and that can get quite problematic but you're loving it but i'm loving best it. decision you ever made <laughs> one of the best decisions you can't ask more than that <laughs> uh, make sure if you're listening to this which of course you are you're subscribing to the tls which is a really lovely magazine once you get to know it that's fair, I think, dear, isn't it? Yeah. This week, what's the story, Edward Gorey? As Oasis may have sung, if they were interested in an American author and illustrator who was odd and clever and once wrote a book that Graham Greene called the best novel yet written about a novelist. I wonder what, the, what I would nominate the best novel written about. Can you think of a novel written about a novelist? Oh, now you're asking. I know. Um, Becca Book, the Updike book that was about a novelist, mm. maybe. Um, I mean, there are loads. Right. That's Th- why just mental blank. <laughs> Think about it. We'll pop up in the rest of the show. Phil Baker is here to tell us more about this guy. It's a fascinating person. I'd never heard. Had you heard of him? We can. I had, had yes, but only oh, wow. no, only once. <laughs> only once I started reading it, and uh, the title started to sound familiar, and then I started looking at the 
uh, illustrations and that was when it clicked I've definitely had them when I was a child which is a bit weird if you haven't heard of him Phil Baker's going to tell us more about him Uh, it's pretty hard to write well about humour funniness is something you experience but it can fall flat when it's analysed so no pressure on Ian Sansom then who's reviewed two books on wittiness he'll be sharing their best gags and are letters somehow better than emails we seem to think so because they can be beautiful and colourful and take far more energy than simply typing a short sentence with an exclamation mark which is basically all I do in emails I hate exclamation marks mm-hmm. I hate people who use exclamation marks mm-hmm. and I am that person now it's all, I thanks. know I know that you have used an yeah. exclamation thanks. mark in an email great <laughs> yeah. well I'm not that person I don't talk like that I don't think like no. that thanks how are you awesome yeah. oh yeah hey hey <laughs> <laughs> It's killing me. I think it's pervasive. Do you do it as well, isn't it? Everyone does it. Yeah, I mean, I, I will have used an exclamation mark. Yeah. Hope all well. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, in exclamatory fashion, hope anyone is well. And yet I'm constantly saying in email, hope all well. I'm glad I got that off my chest. Francis Wilson. Take a breather. Yeah. Francis Wilson's going to be looking at these things in a far more cerebral way. Uh, and she's reviewed three books that celebrate letter writing in all of its glory. Morbid, wistful and somehow immensely charming, combining elements of gothic and camp without being limited by either, plus a dancing cat or three and an arm with two elbows. Welcome to the world of Edward Gorey, writer, illustrator and designer of, among other things, fur coats and wallpaper, a man whose dark and twisted vision dripping in Victoriana was a conscientious objection to the chirpy ain't-everything swell timber of 1950s America. (laughs) Graham Greene was a fan, as was Samuel Beckett, two of whose works were illustrated by Gorey. Frank O'Hara wrote a poem for him. Happily, our own Phil Baker is also an admirer of Gorey's, and he joins us on the line now to tell us why. Hello, Phil. Hello there. Um, So who was Edward Gorey? Because he wasn't born on the dark side of the moon, or indeed in some neo-Gothic British castle, as we might expect. No, he was an American illustrator. He went to Harvard... Uh, he knew John Ashbery and Alison Lurie, but increasingly he was—he kind of went into a world of his own, in a kind of fantasy Victorian sort of vision. Um, people always try to restrict it, I think, by saying it's camp and gothic, but I don't think it can be quite reduced to either. And he liked to see it as a nonsense world, like the world of Edward Lear or the world of. Lewis Carroll. There's something very, very wistful about it, but there's also something very, very charming. It's quite distinctive. You only have to see Edward Gorey immediately. You know where you are. Yeah, and he thought the the, the whole idea of nonsense for him was, was very much tied up with negativity. Yes, there's something very... Well, it's very, very melancholy um, and bound up with a sense of mortality. But I think that's true of Edward Lear as well. Yeah. yeah. Lear is the person that you... you you think of him uh, when you read your piece, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and is there a sense that he was, he was like Lear, unhappy? There was a kind of unhappiness or a questioning about his identity, maybe even his sexual identity, that was sort of powering his, his, yes, his art? Yes, possibly. He doesn't seem... The great revelation in this biography, had it been there, would have been about his, you know, sexual life. But, in fact, there doesn't seem to have been one, really. The revelation would have been about relationships, but there seems to have been no relationship. A few unrequited crushes and sentimental 
relationships, but really nothing very hands-on. He described himself as asexual and sort of thought that his sexuality should have, and it's quite refreshing for this kind of identity politics era that we're in, he thought his sexuality should have absolutely no bearance on on how we read his work. Yeah, he thought he was just primarily a human being. Um, Although there is probably a sort of queer aesthetic in the work, and now, obviously, in academia, people have read it with queer theory. Um, and what does that do to the work? Does, does it help, do you think? Or? Um, I don't know, up to a point. Yes, I can see it does up to a point. But there's a further kind of sterility in Gorey's work, if I can use that in a non-pejorative way. And that's true of Beckett as well, I think. It's why probably Beckett felt they were somehow kindred spirits. I mean, they're both very keen on stones, for example. They have an almost sentimental love of stones. So there is this strange a kind of immaculate sterility somewhere at the heart of it, yeah, uh, I which I don't think can be totally reduced to queer theory. And I suppose that ties in with, um, he seemed to be particularly disparaging of the maternal, so, you know, the life force. Yes, he does seem to be. He does seem to have... He doesn't so much take it out on the idea of mothers in the way that some people do. I wouldn't say his work is misogynistic, but he certainly takes it out on the idea of babies. He quite clearly loathes babies and <laughs> infants, and that's why they come to so many sticky ends, I and, think, in his work. And yet he is a, he's a, an artist for children. Is that, is that fair? I mean, because kids, obviously, they, yeah. love, they love death, they love icky yeah. situations involving other children. It's got a kind of subverted relationship to children's fiction or children's illustrated books but then of course children love that yes. um that's one of the, the most the most successful children's books probably have a subverted relationship to children's fiction um but yes there is a kind of um illustration for children element there and i'm sure young people uh, particularly in america there's something kind of, i think because america is such a positive society there's something maybe more exciting in America about being negative. The, the witchcraft, the gothic, all that kind of stuff some, some, seems somehow bigger in America than mm. it does in Britain. For us, it's just part of the day-to-day. Say, yeah, it's just realism. <laughs> yeah, we just take it for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, what, what is his best-known work, then? Is it the children's stuff? or, or? I think probably The Unstrung Harp is particularly good. Um, that's the one that Graham Greene called the best novel yet written about a novelist. Yes, and I suppose that's my favourite. That's possibly the, the best of them for adult readers. Um, but also a kind of definitive work that's probably best known in terms of how many go over the counter at bookshops uh, is the Gashley Crumb Tinies. Um, <laughs> Excellent titles, which, all yes, of them. Which is the one where all these little children come to sticky ends. Uh, let's go back to the un- Unstrung Heart, because you quote a bit which says, towards the end, Mr. Earbrass, because the other title is Mr. Earbrass Writes a Novel, yes. stands on his terrace at twilight, words drifting through his mind, anguish, turnips, conjunctions, illness, defeat, string parties, no parties, urns, desiritude, disaffection. It really is British realism, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so how experimental a fiction writer is he? Because this is from the 50s. Is he, is he a, um, uh, a symbolist, a sort of mo- a yeah, late modernist? Yeah, there or? is a symbolist element in that. And he was actually... You can't always tell it from the drawings, but he was in private quite a sophisticated literary sort of individual. I mean, he was a friend, I'm a friend of John Ashbery, for example. And there is something in his work that goes back to a symbolist aesthetic, also the higher end of the surrealist aesthetic. He was very interested in the collages of Max Ernst um, and something of the aesthete. And again, aestheticism perhaps has that same 
overlaps a bit with that same sterility. There's and a kind of exquisite sterility and aestheticism, and that is somehow where Gory is coming from. And there's more to come, isn't there? Because on he, he died in, was it in 2000, and his executor found a, a load yes. of papers? There's another, at least one other manuscript. And what I thought was quite exciting about the manuscript is it's very early, so it seems to be possibly back to the quality of the Mr. Earbrass stuff. Because oddly, he did do his... If you think Earbrass is his best work, which I think possibly it is, The Unstrung Harp, that was his very first book. And it seems to, the unpublished the un, uh, manuscript seems to come from that period. Um, well, you talk about him as an illustrator and, and you say that if you, you, you see one, you kind of know it's him. Um, to someone who doesn't know that, how would you describe the drawings? What would, what would, what would you, you point to? Um, there's a kind of simplicity about them, but also an absolutely fanatical cross-hatching. Um, it's almost a kind of hand-done pastiche of uh, Victorian engravings and things produced by industrial processes. But in Ogori's case, it's all done by hand, the cross-hatching. And there's a sort of simplicity. Um, I don't think you could confuse it with real Victorian um, drawing. It's a kind of mid to late 20th century vision of the Victorian, a sort of 1950s to 1970s kind of vision of the Victorian. Um, and often quite simple. The things he did for Beckett, some of them are just thumbprints, things like that, with little faces put on them, or made to look like skulls, that kind of thing. So they're sometimes very simple. He worked with, with Beckett on those illustrations, as you say. Um, do, we know, do we know about his own reading habits? I mean, who, who or, or do we just sort of guess them from his own work. He liked 19th century fiction. Um, he loved Dickens for most of his life, but then in an interview, this is in a way typical, he was a very fastidious man, I think, and so he'd read virtually the whole of Dickens and probably read it several times, but then he said, I've, but now I've come across an anecdote about Dickens, and it's so distasteful I can't read another word of him ever again, or words to that effect. And I'd love to know, I'm sure we all would, what this anecdote was. Well, it's the time um, for that. We, we had the thing in the paper a couple mm. of weeks ago about Dickens trying to lock his wife up in a lunatic asylum. Well, perhaps it was something like that. Who knows? Um, he was also very keen on Flaubert, and Agatha Christie was a particular favourite. Oh, yeah, he, had a, uh, he wrote his sort of version of an Agatha Christie sort of book, didn't he? Yes, uh, the Audrey Gore legacy, mm. which, which is like a, a uh, typically an anagram of his own name <laughs> shuffled around. He had all these strange um, yeah. pseudonyms, uh, anagrams of his own name, um, which he got better value out of than most of us would, I think. Yeah. Ogdred Weary, Garrod Weedy, <laughs> Roy Grudead. I mean, it's a great name for anagrams. Really good. He, um, didn't like, he didn't like Henry James, I was slightly... <laughs> I, I was laughing at his uh, know, appraisal I, of Henry I kind James. Of feel, I kind of feel I always end up defending Henry James, often on this podcast. What, <laughs> what's wrong with Henry James? I think it was... Because he's a kind of sterile aesthete at one mm, level. I think it's partly because people always think he would like Henry James, <laughs> yeah. that he was reacting against it. I think the wordiness of Henry James wore him down a bit. Did he say he, said he, he, he leaves nothing to the reader's imagination? Well, you see, I think Henry James does leave a lot to the yeah, reader's so imagination. I. But I don't, it's not Gory who actually says that. I think it's Mark Derry who's just done the new biography, ah. um, who sort of picks up the idea that he doesn't like James's wordiness, but then thinks it's James's 
over-explicitness. And in fact, I don't think James is over-explicit. Well, no, I think, in fact, it's rather the opposite. Well, if you said that he, could, that he refers to James's lunk-headed insistence on explaining things to death which kills ambiguity and with its subtlety... Yes, that's Mark you, Derry. Yeah, if you read the last any of the last three novels, I mean, you can't pretty much work out what's going on at all. No, <laughs> or the turn of the screw. I mean, the idea that the turn of the screw, you know, somehow flogs things to death with being too explicit or whatever, it's nonsense, in fact, isn't it? Um, so, um, is this then, I mean, that aside, or maybe that's very much part of it, is this a good biography? It's a very serviceable biography. It's solidly researched. It does give you the facts. You're not going to do that thing, that TLS reviewer thing, where someone has devoted 500 pages to a person. We had this recently. I think the biography was like 800 pages long, and the, the review ended... Uh, uh, there's still room for another biography on this subject or, or the definitive biography still needs to be written. written yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh God, this person has stood um, for 20 years doing this. Yeah. No, I don't, I, I don't know if there's room for another full biography. There are probably, there's plenty of room for essays on Gory, which might be a lot, in some ways, better than the biography and more finely tuned. It was a kind of wavelength problem, um, I felt, between the biography and Gory. Um, when the biographer refers to, uh, for example, La Rochefoucauld as the French phrase master, <laughs> that kind of thing, you could just feel Gory spinning in his grave <laughs> at that moment. We should talk about his grave, and probably that's where we'll have to leave it, but his, his, the very end of his life, how he chose to mark it, uh, that, that tells us a bit about him too, I think. He, yes, what was his... I can't remember his epigraph... Um, he had two things he suggested. I think there was not one was not really. Yeah, and the other one, uh, oh, the other it. was oh, the of it all. Yes, it looks like a, <laughs> some kind of grammatical error or something missing. <laughs> yeah. But that was what he thought of as his motto: oh, the of it all. That's <laughs> it. Yes. I mean, he he sounds like a. Is he time to be? I mean, is it patronising to talk about him being rediscovered? I mean, are you surprised I've not heard of him? Should he be better known? Is is his moment going to come? Do you think where people are going to find him more? He's very popular at a certain level. He's probably not quite as popular as he deserves to be at a quality level. But in a kind, at a kind of gift shop level, he is already very, very popular. Plenty of Edward Gorey greetings cards. Are there? There's a whole Edward Gorey soft toys. There's a whole sort of Edward Gorey industry out there. Um, yes. But oh. no, I think as a, he's still under-recognised, perhaps, as a serious writer as well as a fun illustrator. Because um, well, there is something very serious at the heart of his work. You I could think. almost make the case for, that, for Lear as well, I suppose, couldn't you? Because he was always dismissed purely for nonsense and, and, and the drawing. And there was something going on there as well, something yes. deeper, I think, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, uh, Phil, thank you so much for that. I feel like I, 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 the motto is outstanding. Oh, the of, of it, it all. all. <laughs> That's it. Oh, the of it all. It's almost impossible to say because you're, yes. you're. Oh, uh, the uh, of it all. Yeah, this is sort of you're, you're leaving a, a gap. Yeah. 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 Oh, the of it all. Oh, well, the of it all. I'm going to try and use that in, in daily conversation. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, Phil Baker, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Uh, I quite like the idea of a stuffed toy. Well, I mean, what would it look like? I don't know. I mean, I, I think if you if you are a good children's writer, here's an interesting question. You're always kind of dismissed as a good children's writer forever, aren't you? Mm. That, that, that's what, Once you succeed in that area, and I suspect children's writers are often filled with people who feel they're being wrongly pigeonholed like that. That's what you are. Mm. Roll dull. And if anything, you do anything else, people will just look at you and go, yeah, but you're, you're the kid's writer, mm. aren't you? Mm. And so maybe that's why... 
Um, maybe that's why. But I, I, quite, I quite fancy reading the unstrung harp. I think they all sound brilliant, and I do feel that I encountered them as a child. Do you? Yeah, because I, I loved all of that. Well, as all children seem to, that kind of dark twistedness. Yeah. And so I'm sure my mum doesn't surprise. That doesn't surprise me knowing you know. Mr. Earbrest, the novels that he wrote uh, include a moral dustbin. These are great titles: a moral dustbin and more chains than clank. <laughs> There's a motto in that as well, I think. It's been well observed that the email of the species is more deadly than the male, and an entire culture of nostalgia has grown around the real paper and ink letter, especially in comparison to its vulgar and arriviste electronic cousin. Frances Wilson this week examines the distinction between the two forms with an amused and sceptical eye. She's reviewed three books, What a Hazard a Letter Is by Caroline Atkins, Written in History by Simon Sebag Montefiore, and In Their Own Words, which is a collection of letters from the National Archives. So what do we learn? Letters are secure. They can't be hacked. They're the product of more poise. It's hard to send them off unthinkingly. And they're more visual. Real letters now look like pictures, says Francis. They come on colourful paper. Thick cream, thin blue, mushroom coloured, a shade of pale lime. And with those non-uniform squiggles on them, it's equally startling to see handwriting again, Francis points out, and to recall what a lovely thing a good hand like that of Abraham Lincoln can be. My handwriting, I must confess, looks as if it's come from someone in the spasms of unseemly demise. My favourite quote in the piece is this one. I write a love letter, said Flaubert, to write, and not because I love. He remained unmarried. (laughs) Harsh. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's harsh. I mean, he obviously remained unmarried because he's clearly a massive narcissist. But anyway, Francis Wilson is joining Theo and me now. Francis, Hello. Hello. Um, I love that quote, Francis. And I kind of, I, I thought, I'm sure he didn't get married. And then I looked it up and thought, oh, no, of course he didn't, if he's going to uh, talk about like that. <laughs> um, big question then, I think, which is the premise of at least a couple of these books. Are letters fundamentally better than emails? Oh, dear. It's kind of, it's such a sort of, Tired argument, really, isn't yeah. it? And I, I felt very exhausted by the um, by the fetishizing of letters in in um, both of um, in the books by Caroline Atkins and Simon Seabag Montefiore, because that the assumption is that letters are morally better than yeah. emails, and I can't quite get hold of that. I mean, letters are always in the process of revising their identity. I mean, we no longer write, for example, on animal skins. I mean, in a, yeah. a letter is just a written message. And the fact that we now have the convenience of writing that message on a screen and pinging it off rather than finding the paper and the pen and then an envelope and then going to the post office doesn't mean that it's morally somehow negligible. But it does change the, the, the form. Sorry, the, yeah, the form does change how we write. I was just saying to, to Thea that I now despise myself because I just do these awful jaunty emails full of exclamation marks, which is kind of a completely opposed yeah. to my character in real life. So do you think there's an argument that the, the, yeah. the, 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 the ease of the form affects style a little bit? That's interesting about, you know, the jollity and the exclamation marks. Yeah, I think that can happen. Certainly it can happen. But I, in my emails, I make a real effort to be literary. You know, to write it, I, I like emails very much because it makes me write more letters than I would otherwise. I'd never sit down with a pen and paper and write a letter to anyone. No, me neither. I haven't got time. Surely it all depends on who we're writing to, though, because, you know, we, we'll compose um, a nice 
email, a well-structured email, if we don't know the person. If we don't know the person, we're probably also, yes. depending on the topic, more likely to throw in an exclamation mark to make sure that they know that we're not, yes. you know, dry and serious or whatever it is that we're trying to communicate about ourselves. Whereas if we do know the person, guess, then it's unstructured and a bit of a mess. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> I wonder if the... No, I, I think it's interesting with kind of the the emoji side of emails and the exclamation side, and possibly it's because it's totally harder to read with print mm. than it is with handwriting. I'm much more fluent on a keyboard than I am with a pen. I'd say much more. I mean, Simon Seabag, Montefiore's argument is that uh, that emails have what he calls a kind of lack of authenticity, and I'm not at all sure what he means by authenticity in context or what anyone means by authenticity but I find I'm, I'm much more likely to say the unexpected thing or the honest thing if I'm writing on a keyboard than with a, if I'm writing kind of very hesitantly with a pen. Do you find Francis because you write books um, uh, there's a piece to be written that, that of people now will grow up only writing books on screen which means you don't delete yes. you can delete rather you don't scratch out you're not invested in a text as much you can move texts around that will ultimately affect style of books like the ones you write or novels or, or, or whatever. Do you, that's going to happen, isn't it? Our, our style is going to be amended. Oh, gosh, for sure it is. Um, I have nothing but admiration for people who write books on, um, people who wrote books on paper with a pen. Yeah. It's extraordinary looking at, um, looking at manuscripts of books in libraries. God, the skill that that involved being able to plot your book out before you wrote it rather than just plotting it out on the hop yeah. our minds must like be shrinking kind of cutting and pasting <laughs> because well, you must have done you, you did all of the thinking inside your head got it all into shape yeah. there did all of the editing in your mind and then put it down on paper especially if you were you know cash strapped and writing trying to write for a living you didn't want to waste your, yeah. your materials and you could also when you cross something someone was saying this to me when you cross something out it doesn't disappear mm. so you cross something yeah. out and then it's there as a sort of palimpsest and if you want to return to it you can do and you and, and often with a computer a delete is a kind of bold act isn't it mm. that whole business of sitting down and taking a line for a walk writing one word mm. and then seeing what word follows and then what word follows i think that's over but it could be it would be a very good idea i think on creative writing courses now to ban the computer oh do you think so, get, oh better distance. so you're kind of we're kind of we're a bit sniffy about simon uh seabag montefiore and we'll talk about why in a moment but we're, we're, we're edging close to a moral sense here, Francis, that it's somehow, uh, you know, it's done by dying candlelight. It's more physical. It's more wearing. It's more intellectually challenging. There's something because it's harder. It's therefore better. Yes, yes. But I think a, a good email is hard as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I want to get an email from you, Francis. I want to get a literary email from you. Um, tell, us, tell us what's wrong with the, the Montefiore book, because... Um, it's it feels glib the things you've quoted and it feels like it's taken as read that letters have earned their place in history in a way that emails haven't well i think that i mean i enjoyed i enjoyed the book i mean i enjoyed the letters in the book i thought there was a problem with the introduction and that was his that was his focus on um, on authenticity and his kind of romance of uh, of letter writing, you know, writing deep into the night with a flickering candle, and his idea of emails as all being flippant and all being thin, and none of them having any sense of the writer's identity. 
there I thought was really problematic because surely the uh, you know the strength of a letter the moral strength of a letter isn't entirely in handwriting is it no. it's entirely in the uh, in the presumed length of time it took to write it I spent ages and ages writing an email and I know that my email would be um is better expressed than anything I could have produced on a piece of fool's crap with a pencil. I also think there's a real problem with his term authenticity, and I keep returning to this because he doesn't define what he means by it. And the definition of authenticity I work by is Lionel Trilling's definition, where he says that being authentic is staying true to oneself. And uh, in, the, in the absence of any other definition of authenticity, I'm, sort of, I'm sticking with that one. Yeah. And I don't see why a letter, a handwritten letter, is more true to yourself than an email. And after all, letters come in lots of different forms as well. You can write a bland letter to a company and you can write a sort of bland email yeah. to a company. And his assumption as well is that, kind of, that letters have got a sort of truth. Letters don't contain kind of... Um, um, lightness or gossip or lies because they've got the authenticity of a person behind them. Yes, unless it's a lying, gossipy, light letter. Yeah. Well, exactly. And he, he <laughs> creates this quite sort of strange and not particularly steady um, comparison with, or friction even, with, with newspapers, letters. I don't, and I don't understand yeah. what's going on. It's almost like he's taken Virginia Woolf in the 1940s, you know, what she wrote about the letter as a humane art. It's almost like he's taken it's that snobbishness, and, and yeah, and and not quite understood yes. it. Yes, I couldn't understand why when he says when we read a tabloid newspaper or a gossip site, we know that half of what we read is false. The joy of private letters is that they're the real thing. We're not depending on gossip. You want how we we moved from reading the Daily Mail to reading a private letter. I mean, they're two <laughs> completely different. <laughs> <laughs> and they could both be false, couldn't they? Exactly, and both be true. They could both be true or false, yeah. I'll both be true. Yeah. Or you could read the same piece of gossip in each. Yeah. I could, just couldn't... It seems... Well, what I thought, ironically, was that the introduction, his introduction, was very, very rushed, as though he were pinging off an email <laughs> in his definition of an email. That's okay. that, that, but there is an aesthetic thing here, isn't there, that... that is possibly informing him. What was the what? And, and you've looked at a lot of letters here. Uh, I guess what's your favourite yeah. handwriting? You, you mentioned Abraham Lincoln, which I thought was was nice. And what letters did oh, you read God, that, that made something, meant something to you? Yeah. Oh, the hand the handwriting really was in the uh, yes in the in their own words in that in in that collection letters from history. The handwriting was absolutely extraordinary, and the handwriting did make you realise more than ever what we're missing in an email that handwriting captures all sorts of kind of human oddities that he, that emails just simply can't reach like the kind i love the handwriting of the cray twins father which is like it was big loopy handwriting with a kind of blotchy biro <laughs> on scraps of note paper lined note paper and it, it looked like my handwriting when i was 15 <laughs> and the handwriting told you <laughs> the handwriting said much more than the, the, it was a bonkers letter anyway because he was talking about his respectful and good natured lads and how they should be <laughs> It was he was imploring the court to kind of go easy on them, but um, apart from the kind of the, the madness and the the madness and the dishonesty of the content, the handwriting itself was sort of so so naive and optimistic. But having said that, I also think that we should not 
assume, as Steve Ed Montefiore does, that handwriting expresses a deep identity. That has to be a pseudoscience, doesn't it? It's fun mm. handwriting. Oh, you, oh, I don't think you can read it. Oh, that's an interesting one. Well, my handwriting is so illegible that if I were to send people handwritten <laughs> letters, I might as well just be shouting into the air. I mean, it's, it's true, just, I have seen it. Yeah, it's... <laughs> um, there's a great bit in... in there's a great bit in Pride and Prejudice when... Um, which I think is the first recorded example of a humble brag in literature because Bingley's, <laughs> Bingley is writing a letter and uh, Darcy looks over and says, your handwriting's a bit rubbish. And Bingley goes, oh yeah, I've got such bad handwriting because the ideas are just flowing out of me <laughs> so quickly. It's really hard. Um, <laughs> and Darcy leans forward and goes, that's an example of what I like to call an indirect boast. You really wanted to be impressed with the speed of your thought, not the poverty of your hand or something like that. And of course, that's exactly right. Oh, the, that's the idea of a scruffy yeah. handwriting, we kind of imply at least to ourselves and to other people that's a sign of brilliance and you you can't quite catch yes. everything because you've got such a fertile mind your hand can't keep up with you with you yes oh that's my excuse but <laughs> looking at i mean ch lawrence for example who's handwriting i'm immersed in at the moment because i'm I, because i'm writing about him i've been reading his manuscripts in the berg library here in new york and his handwriting was incredible incredibly neat and she wrote his novels you know from beginning with the first word and ending with the last word and it was one draft and it's extraordinarily legible but his thought was bonkers all of the weird all of the weird sex stuff that he wrote was done intelligibly yeah. and neatly in, in order intelligibly and neatly yes oh, and wow. there you are you see very very clear thinking but with wayward illegible handwriting yeah exactly exactly is that <laughs> as a lawrence expert this is a massive digression but is there is there a writer in the canon more liable to damaging quotation than dh lawrence do you think we you know if you were to pull out a sentence that 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 makes you your, your heart sink in the canon lawrence is he may be very good but when he's bad he seems to me to be very bad or very silly is that unfair yeah. do you think no, it's completely fair. And he didn't seem to have any idea about the difference between these two sides of himself. But he didn't know that he was veering into the into the silly and into the ridiculous. And in fact, that was the part of himself that he valued the most. But talking about letters, Lawrence's letters are so authentic in the way that Steve Montefiore would define it, because he just lets rip. I mean, his letters are all hate letters. He doesn't hold anything back. So in that sense, they're all emails. If emails are kind of unedited, your unedited thought. What about to Frida? Were there no love letters there? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> He was more Flaubert. Flaubert. No, no, no. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, we talk. Uh, Atkins books about unsent letters. Um, there's a great one that you yeah. quote, which is Kafka to his dad. Dearest oh, God, father, sure, you yeah. asked me recently why I maintain that I'm afraid of you. As usual, I was unable to think of any answer to your question, partly for the very reason that I'm afraid of you. Have you read that letter? No. Oh, oh God, it's heartbreaking. It's 15,000 well, words long. Yeah. I have it as a book. Do you? Yeah, it's a book. Yeah. <laughs> and it was never sent. His mum stopped him sending really? it. Thank God. <laughs> Is that what you think, Thea? Thank God. That there well, are I mean, unsent letters that should remain unsent. Well, I think so. I mean, in the, and I suppose we do this with email as well, in that we do, with, you know, you point out with the letter, you could write the letter and then it was advisable to sit on it for a day or you know a few yeah. days until you've decided that yes I, I stand by what I wrote and I want to send it and we do have an equivalent with with the draft folder in our inboxes I don't use it at all 
Yes. I have so many draft yes. emails. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I do sometimes think My mind's that... just so quick, it's just the flow that comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. No capitals. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Loads of exclamation Loads of marks. marks. No! <laughs> but I do, I do think that possibly it, you need to sit on something before you send it. Or, which isn't to say that it shouldn't be sent. And then you, we have this other interesting problem, which you point out that all of the letters in the Caroline Atkins book are um they have in common that they were unsent now in fact they have been published that makes them all sent <laughs> they're all sent letters now, yeah and the, the problem with the caroline atkins book is that she doesn't she doesn't kind of register that that the weirdest thing she talks about the destination of the unsent letter isn't it strange it never gets sent without saying well the weirdest thing is when all unsent letters get gathered in an anthology and we sit and read them yeah. in this kind of voyeuristic way and mull over them again in this very moralistic way of kind of well maybe that should have remained unsent and she's very moralizing she said yes but i'm glad that was unsent but maybe sylvia beach should have sent her letter to james joyce saying stop looking off me and i think it was, who are we to decide whether someone's letter should be sent or not here's a final question for you francis but, as, a, as a woman interested in in writing about the lives of um of figures who are no longer with us in a world without letters in a world of emails is, is a biographer in a hundred years time writing the life of thea going to be forced <laughs> God help them going to be forced to trawl <laughs> through emails and is that going to be the same thing do you think that uh, you you when you write about lawrence and you look at his letters will get a, a window into his soul uh, in a way that in a hundred years time someone writing about a writer won't because of emails because of the informality because of of, of of all of that I just don't think that. I mean, every writer writes dreary letters, and we all of us write dreary emails. But to, but my email correspondence with friends is fantastically rich, and I'm sure that you know, with certain people, and those are the certain letters that a biographer would base their uh, would base their book on. And I also think the whole business of sending emails when you're drunk, which is <laughs> so many of us do, is going to give biographers a huge amount of fun in the future. Obviously, that's, that's what that's what my, my draft folder's full of. Full of drunk emails. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's a, there should be a rule that people aren't allowed to send emails after 10 o'clock at night, I think, possibly. I think we're one step away from that, aren't we? I mean, the sort of with, with your computer telling you not to, in the same way that your computer <laughs> yeah. now tells you how to respond to a message. You get, oh, yes, that would be awesome. lovely. Yeah. Kind of Have you ever yeah, used that? You should get Never. It. Has anyone, come on, Francis, confession time. Have, has, have you ever yes. said, that's awesome. <laughs> I want my emails pop up with saying Francis are you sure it's after 10 o'clock at night and I can sense a bit of so the email becomes you know the the computer becomes a bit of a breathalyzer and it can tell that you've been a bit more bit more effusive than usual or you've you know you've done a few misspellings so it says Francis are you sure I'm going to put this message in draft for you, you can come back in the morning and it locks you from sending it. Why hasn't anyone invented that? I, uh, well, come on, tech people, yeah. do something useful. Oh, exactly. Uh, Francis <laughs> yeah. Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank Bye. you. Bye. You could actually do that. I'm sure a computer could analyse. They could say this is this is not your normal style. Yeah, you're not you're not typing at your usual speed, or yeah, or, or there's more mistakes, or more expletives, more exclamations. <laughs> do you use draft? I do use draft. I mean, mostly just to sort of get something started and then yeah, come back yeah, to it yeah, later yeah because actually email is quite a 
stock into your trade, isn't it, when you're commissioning? Yeah, exactly. And you'll quite often be waiting for something to come in before you want to send that email, but you want to make sure that you've started it. Yeah. It's all very boring. None of these are actually very interesting uh, missives. <laughs> we'll find out. The biographers of the future will find out there. <laughs> this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You cannot force people to laugh, said William Hazlitt. You cannot give them a reason why they should laugh. They must laugh of themselves or not at all is all very well and good but tell that to James Geary who's written a book called Wits End what wit is how it works and why we need it do we need a book on wit is itself an interesting question which Ian Sansom can answer along with his thoughts on Giles Brandreth's book of humorous quotes are they sly rib ticklers or a compendium of the contrived Ian Sansom can tell us Ian hello Making me laugh already. Well, there we go. <laughs> Job uh, done. I think we'll end it there. Yeah, I'm loving this. It's, it's, it's downhill from now on. Um, let's start with. That was, that was like the bloke who used to introduce the what was the musical program? Leonard Sachs, where he used to do that thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know what you mean. I know. What you mean. Right. Yeah. Focus. 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 Um, Geary, do yeah. we need do we need a book like Geary? And can it? I mean, because you make the point, it's hard to analyse humour without being humourless. I think it's quite a tricky thing to try and pull off, it's not least because what Geary tries to do in the book, which, I mean, it's, you know, fair play to him, what he tries to do in the book is write a witty book, but a serious book about wit, which, you know, is, is, is going to be tricky because, 
well, wit is, is, is instinctive, isn't it? You know yourself, it's something that is, is kind of like a little flash or a little moment. And as soon as you try, and it's like that. So James, it's, James Thurber yeah. was, you know, was brilliant on kind of uh, talking about, you know, why, why you couldn't analyze comedy. And he said it was something like, it's, it's like dissecting a frog, you know, as soon as you, di- you know, the frog is dead. <laughs> yeah. There's that bit in uh, in Blackadder, the Blackadder second, where he uh, is trying to sell his house, and the bloke turns to him and says, "Oh, you've got your patter all uh, all sorted out." And, and Blackadder turns around and says, "No, it's something more spontaneous. It's called wit." <laughs> um, uh, and, and that's kind of the point, isn't it? That if you kind of have to analyse it, you may be you may be chasing chasing something that's not there. But what conclusions does James Geary draw? What, what what did you learn anything in? about this well i only i learned that he was very adept that mr geary was very very adept at adopting he he takes basically various styles of verbal wit and then is he, for example he's got a whole chapter on puns yeah. uh, written in a punning styly which you're either going to find absolutely delightful or you're going to find you know, it, 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 you know a, a terrible irritation yeah exactly exactly and and it's that's the problem always isn't it with, with because you know brevity is the etc etc yeah. so it li- becomes tedious very 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 quickly do you like a pun ian i love a pun I know you like a. I know you're mad, you're mad on your cheese jokes, Stig. Like and, a, um, everybody knows that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I, I, and I get a lot of criticism, but I like a. I think a pun is yeah. a kind of. You don't want to overstate it, but it's it's kind of a, it's a neat parcel of wit, isn't it? A pun that really works, that kind of works yeah. on both levels properly, which is quite mm. rare. Yeah. It is a nice piece of mental agility, and, and, and you don't have to laugh at it, but you kind of you can appreciate. You can kind it. of if appreciate. It, if it works, yeah, the, the, if it achieves that balance that you're describing, which, yeah. as you said, is very rare, then there's something to it's appreciate there. It's, it's, quite, quite it's, it's quite rare. It's quite rare. It's quite rare. rare. If you can do it, it's, well, it's a, it's rare. It's a, it's a rare or as it's as rare or as unrare, if you like, as as kind of a nice. Uh, I don't know, a nice flapjack or something. Nice I don't frog. think it's that remarkable. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that remarkable. I mean, fair, fair, fair play to people who can do it. I think it's something, don't you think, with puns, it's something you can do or you can't do. I don't yeah. think. You know, I bet you can pun. Ian, you struck me as a great I bet you'd be a great no, punter. I'm not a punter. I'm not a punter. Are you not? No, 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 not at all. Not even a no. It's, there's a, there's a, I think you have to, there's a kind of mental agility that's required. Um, I tell you who is a good punter, a, a very, very good punter is late of the TLS, Will Eves. He's oh, a very yes. good punter. Yeah, yeah. Will is a very, very good punter. He does very well at can... this podcast. But people are always praising <laughs> Will. They should just call this the Will yeah. Eves celebratory podcast. Oh, really? Well, yeah. he's a, but that's because he's able to sort of, he can sort of see a, a, a gap and kind of run into, you know, it's, it's like that. And, yeah, a natural, a natural yeah. wit. Um, yeah, so most how, of how, just calm. Yeah. How, um, how important is it or how... Do we need to distill the difference between wit and humour and wit and wisecracks? Mm, we probably do, but I mean, even do to do so, doesn't it? Do you make sure? Even the thought about, but I mean, of course, so I mean, you could, yes. So your, your wit is something that is to do with the intellect, to wit, to know, and then the humour is to, you know, derives from the idea of the humours. I suppose. I mean, I'm not an expert in these matters, but um, so there's that sort of there's a dryness to wit. There's a, there's something, else. and comedy is something different again because it suggests a kind of 
whole repertoire and genre and all lots of mechanics. And so I think they are very, very different things. I mean, the best the best people on wit are people. I mean, Hazlitt is very good on wit, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's a little spark. Dorothy Parker's very good. You know, it's a, that little sparkle, yeah. isn't it? And there's a little glint of malice there often as well. Yeah. I think. Isn't it? Who, so, who are the who are the heroes or heroines of the book? You say Dorothy Parker, well, and he, definitely yeah. and, and he says uh, in a footnote, Dorothy Parker didn't make this remark. But when writing footnotes, I'm impelled to source an epigram. I sometimes cannot place the credit, <laughs> so just assume Dorothy said it. Um, that's funny. It is, that is funny. That is funny, and it's clever. That's um, true. Yeah. Uh, who are who are the other people that you? I mean, do you get a sense of uh, who who are the witty heroes and heroines of the past? Oh blimey! Um, I'm trying to think who I, I would think of. Who would I think is a particularly well, witty it, writer? You know, well, it, I mean, wit is so. It's, I mean, you couldn't deny somebody like Woodhouse. Wit. It's basically yeah. Wood. All the W's. Woodhouse. Wild. I'm trying to think of another W. War? Evelyn Ward. War, yeah, yeah. I'd give, I'd exactly. Give war, I'd give that's, war. that's that's so so the three W's. There there they are. That's, the Holy that's Trinity. Yeah, that's yeah. who you'd point to. Um, but I mean, if you do get people who can do it now, I'm trying to think people who are nimble enough to do it, kind of in literary terms. I mean, Laurie. I always think Laurie Moore's quite witty on the page. I don't know what she's like in person, but on the page, yeah. Um, there's a, there's something there, isn't there? There's, there's a there's a there's a woman who writes columns in the Guardian, which I find um, called Marina Hyde. Who's oh, be- she's good. Yeah, who's she's be- good. And what's interesting about about Marina, I, I feel, is that that. Um, that's becoming more and more prized. I think she, she does that three or four a week now. They're always about, they're very, very leery. They're very sweary. Right. They're very aggressive. And, and I think because certain standards of decorum have dropped in public life over the last 20 years. And the times are so ripe for yeah, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, but she's allowed to yeah. do it. Like mm. 20 years ago, if she would called, you know, she'll call, you know, Farage sort of dick breath something, or, you know, something like that. And yeah. she'd never be allowed to do that. And I kind of feel no. that because people, social media has maybe made wit more valued because people can turn a phrase and two, maybe lowered the decorum a bit so people feel more more willing mm. to do it. Do you think there's something in that? Yeah, maybe there's just too much of it about, though, at the same time. Mm. No, I don't know. Do you, I, just, I mean, I don't want to sound like an old Eeyore, but um, it's... <laughs> Is it possible to drown it? You know, so is every newspaper now, if you take that example, isn't everyone trying a bit too hard? I I often get the feeling that every every columnist, every writer, I mean, obviously not on the pages of the TLS, but is everyone just overexerting themselves for that sort of um, kind of beach-ready wit (laughs) body? I don't know. (laughs) It's just not... I tell you what, though, Ian, the the opposite of wittiness seems to me to be trying too hard. Because mm. that sort of effortful scavenging and excavating of humour, yeah. it seems to be... Which, it's, it's which got... brings us to Giles Brandreth. <laughs> 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 Seamless. No, but in, fa- in fairness to... I mean, so, so if you take the, 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 that Giles Brandreth book, which is a kind of compendium of kind of humorous quotes, I mean, I think he is... In fair, he's very, very good at, at kind of... He's at that end of things. Do you know what I mean? It's it's all quite polished, and it's all but it's a routine, and there's a, it, there's a duration to what he does, which is you know um, it's the other end of things. We've got we've got a lot of listeners from around the world, uh, Ian. Do you, mm. do you want to have a shot at explaining who Giles Brandreth is to a non <laughs> to, <laughs> to a non British person? Had one of the most extraordinary careers in British public life, which has taken him. You know, he was once a Conservative MP, wasn't he? Yeah. And then he was kind of he used to appear on kind of morning TV wearing funny jumpers, <laughs> and now he kind of. But he's also on a lot of um, kind of radio. Panels, yeah. well, he's sort of Radio 4, he's, he's almost a public intellectual. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. 
what yeah, he is. I, I think that's going a little bit okay. far. <laughs> <if I laughs> but he's, he's, a, he's certainly a man, but he can he, he does spark. There's a kind of forced sparkliness to his manner, yes. which, yeah. which is a kind of, where he's a kind of, no, it's a cross between a kind of Noel Cowardy, sort of Oscar Wilde sort of, um, reaching for that continually tried to entertain which is immensely wearisome after a while but he is nonetheless you've got to give the chap his due yeah. um, he can he can do it but it is like somebody sort of slapping you on the back he's the David Brent of uh, kind of uh, of Radio 4 isn't yeah. it in that yeah. sense and it's, it's, it seems right that he would he would communicate his his talent with us <laughs> via a compendium of quotes yeah. by other people. Yeah. It's this thing. There's the there's, the spontaneity is not there. It's sort of the opposite of getting on a bus in Liverpool, where you'll just meet someone who's got so much more spontaneity and so much more wit that yeah, isn't someone are. else's quote. Yeah. Like yeah. your uncle. Or your exactly, mom, my un- or your exactly. Nan, my or uncle Jimmy. It is, it is, it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everybody has an uncle who just is able to just do that thing. Where after a while you do, I mean, nonetheless, after a while you do think, knock it off, uncle. But you know, Charles <laughs> Brandreth is ev- everybody's kind of well-intentioned, but rather kind of, over, it's over-egged. Isn't he's it, he's, close, really? he's close to, to be the sort of person who says, I'm a bit mad, me. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you don't have to be mad to yeah, work yeah. here. <laughs> and I kind of think yeah. I'm a bit mad, me. As soon as someone says that, yeah. the, the, there's, there's, another, yeah. there's, there's a chapter actually in, in the Geary book which also made my soul shrivel in a similar way. Advanced right. banter. Mm. Yeah, the bad. age of the banter. We're now in the age of banter. Bants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wh- where do you stand on banter, Ian Sanson? I'm, I'm against it. I'm, against <laughs> I'm with you. Uh, uh, no, bad. You're not no. the Archbishop of Banterbury, as the I, phrase. I, I don't know. I'm definitely not. No. Uh, no. But, well, what, great what, what, bants. Great bants. Yeah. <laughs> and that is again, yeah. which again I do think is connected to this new. It is probably we blame everything on social media. I'm not going to stop now, but you kind of there is a new culture where that is valued, and maybe at its best, it's very good. But there's an awful lot of dross that it drags along with it, perhaps. Yes, and it's that, that's it, it, it. Not only is it dross, but it's just I wonder if there is a it's an aspect of performance culture as well, isn't it? Where everyone is performing themselves to such an extent now, kind of online and offline, yeah. that it's sometimes very difficult to have a, you know, a, a genuine, you know, let's, you know, let's be serious for a moment, kind of conversation. Yeah, um, I think that's right. That must be right. Um, I, don't, I don't want to drag this down. But no, yeah. no. But, uh, and, and did you get anything, going back to Brandreth, you know, what's mm. the value of a dictionary of humorous uh, quotations? Is it to enable people to make speeches for their, for their, daughter's wedding is it is oh, it i to... think that's pro it's a rotary club uh, kind of a book i think isn't it that's uh, but nothing wrong with that that's you know god bless them uh, the but is. it's that yes exactly it's that kind of it's a it's a it's a resource base isn't it it's interesting i mean i mean what it really does is it provides the next anthologist of wit and humor with a, <laughs> with a, something to go to yeah. it's, a, it's a self you know it's just a, it's the, the, the gift that keeps on giving in that sense i can't see that there's any use for it whatsoever apart from to put it on the shelf with all the, your other books is there a quote from it that, that made you laugh out loud did you lol at any point in or is it a is there anything good in it that you think? Oh, that's is funny. Dorothy Parker in it? I think Dorothy Parker's in it quite. It's like it's a it's okay, a it's a kind of it's a feast <laughs> of Dorothy Parker, Mae West. It's people saying funny stuff that you know. I'm sure was hilarious. you had to be there. Yeah. <laughs> kind of moments, um, which fine. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have that. There's not. There's a lack of the. You know. The, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think now. That that, that perverse aspect of wit yeah. is is missing mm. in it. 
um, which you do get the kind of in the Geary book, I think, in it, because it, it, it's he's trying to do something. We had a thing um, in the paper, um, a, a mm. critic called Dwight Garner has been writing a commonplace book for all his life, and it was a series of right. quite leery quotations that um, sort of sparked off each other um, in a sort of irreverent way, and that that sort of approach where feels more well, naturally funny because it's just a you know you're not trying to pigeonhole things you're not trying to cram them in mm. they're just arresting moments that you've picked up yeah but also yeah. they're structured and brought together by virtue of having been chosen by the same person so there's a mm. coherence there whereas when we're talking mm. about a compendium of quotations well, they're in isolation i know but they're in isolation from the, the mm. context of the person and the situation in which they were made i can only imagine that jokes fall flat in that in that, yes. in that way yes it's like going to kind of a department store of wit isn't it and just yeah. looking yeah. at it and thinking oh dear <laughs> it's like the john lewis the joke you know but yes it's a, a whereas the dwight garner thing is presumed more of a kind of boutique it's your boutique it is your um, boutique version. yeah exactly yeah boutique exactly. wit yeah um, well i'm ian it's been a huge pleasure talking to you it's a great review i'm 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 not going to get either of these books but that's not always the point of a review, <laughs> review is it it's <laughs> No, no, I don't think so. No. It's an opportunity for the reviewer to show off, yeah. to, be, you know, to try and be funny and fail in comparison to the to the brilliant minds who have written these things. So, yeah. On that bombshell, Ian Sanson, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Oh. Uh, favorite Dorothy Parker or favorite any quotes? I can't remember. The Ryan Dorothy. Parker. I'm really bad at remembering. Yeah, I, there's, the, there's the she she what she had the whole ran the whole gamut of emotions from A to B. Yeah, that's Dorothy Parker. I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. That's yeah. pretty good because there's a kernel that, of truth in there. She's a big her? drinker. Yeah, that's I think her. so. I think so. We had that as a headline. Did we? Yeah. Oh. Because it was yeah we had it. As a, See, that's my memory yeah, for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure I. It's very hard to, Appar- to pluck them out of context, these things, aren't they? Apparently, because we were talking about um, Edward Gorey's um, epitaph. Yeah. Apparently, and I don't know if this is true or not, but in 1925, Vanity Fair ran um, a feature in which they invited uh, writers of the day to write their own epitaphs. And um, Dorothy Parker suggested hers should be, um, excuse my dust. Uh, and good. apparently that was then her epitaph. Spike Milligan's epitaph is, I told you I was sick. Yeah. <laughs> there you no go. That, that's quite funny. Motto, oh, the of it all. Oh, the of it all. Oh, the of it all. That's all we have time for this week. Do go and use oh, the of it all in conversation if you can. Our thanks go to Ian Sanson, Francis Wilson and Phil Baker. The paper this week is a 52-page spring book spectacular. So if you've not read a copy before, this would be a good one to start with. Next week, we'll consider if there's a god or not. Just a small matter then. I don't really want to miss that. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.